Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie Gigi, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. We help organizations and people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. My guest today is Sky Liebold. I met Sky when our kids were in the middle school choir, and we served together on the choir booster board. Sky is living with metastatic breast cancer, and she's not letting it slow her down. Hi, Sky. How are Hi, you doing? Marie. So great to talk to you. It's been a while since we've talked to each other. So yeah. I really appreciate you being willing to be interviewed. Sure thing. So can you tell me about how you are quarantining? What's your quarantine uh, lifestyle and how has COVID-19 affected you? Well, um, we're pretty strict in our house because I am immune compromised. Our son who needs exercise desperately spends a lot of time out on a, a neighborhood school field running and drilling. My husband helps him drill for footwork, for football. And we have a garage weight room. And so they lift a lot in there. My husband is working from home remotely. And we are just kind of at home. The grocery store is really the only thing anybody does, except I go to doctor's appointments. So can you share with our listeners about your life up until a few years ago uh, before cancer? Well, I grew up close to Portland in the Gorge and Camas, Washington. I needed to get away from small towns when I graduated from high school. And so I just sort of ended up in Portland because I had an aunt here that I could get a little bit of support from, at least emotional support, and eventually ended up in Eugene because I went to the University of Oregon to get a degree down there. I hadn't planned on moving back to Portland when I graduated college, but I was offered a, a pretty lucrative job for what my degree was. And so I came back and met my husband as a colleague at that job. And that kind of tied me to Portland. And we have just been raising kids. I stopped working when I became a mom, thinking that I would go back to work at least part-time once the kids were settled in full-time school. But I was unsuccessful at finding anything that would be part-time that I would qualify for. And then cancer hit. And so I have not continued to try to work because it's all I can do to manage all my appointments and recover from the treatment every three weeks. And so I will not be employed again. How do you feel about that? Is that a difficult thing to swallow? In some ways, it's difficult because I feel the need to contribute financially to our household, even though my husband says that's not something I should be worried about. And just to have my own identity outside of being a mom. But at the same time, it's also a bit of a relief because I interviewed for so many jobs where as soon as they figure out that the experiences that were on there were voluntary, people would actually laugh at me. Really? And say, you, wow. so you really think you're qualified for this job? And it would be like, 
a secretary of a school or something. And how how am I not qualified for that? I worked as a transportation planner for four years before I became a mom and I organized our home and all these things that you know very well. And it, but it was always men and they would always just be very condescending and that would be the end of the interview. And so in a sense, it's a relief to not have to experience that anymore. That makes a lot of sense. So can you um, tell us about your experience with cancer? I know that when we first met, you had just finished your first bout with cancer. Yes. How long has it been now? I guess. I know. I was trying to remember that too. Six. Yeah. It's been six years ago. Uh I went in at the age of 41 for my first uh, just routine mammogram. I was of the age. And it came back that I actually already had cancer. Oh my God. It was a, a small tumor, very, very small. I was only, I was actually considered stage zero, but the options I was given for how to deal with it, one involved getting bilateral mastectomies and that's it. And the other option was to have a lumpectomy and radiation and then potentially a lifetime of taking a drug that would be a hormone inhibitor. And so I opted for the simple solution of the bigger surgery so that I didn't have to go forward with, you know, hormone treatment and radiation and all that, thinking it would be simpler. I was a mom, so I didn't want to have lots of extra downtime. I wanted to be able to just do the surgery, recover from it and move forward, which is what I did. And so for three and a half years, I thought I was done with cancer, that it had been a blip on my screen. I kept saying cancer doesn't define who I am. It's just one part of of my experience. And I just really felt really positive about just living my life without worrying about it. But then at three and a half years, it came back with a vengeance. It, it came back completely metastasized in my liver and all over my spine. And it just rocked my world. It, I, it was devastating and heartbreaking to learn. Mm-hmm. That, is that an unusual story that somebody has stage zero and that it goes to metastasis? That fast, yeah. I was told I had a 1% chance of the type of cancer that I had returning at all, Wow! Uh, especially at my age. And I'm that 1%. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So, and I remember when, I don't remember when this happened, but I remember at one point they basically told you you were going to die. Didn't they essentially tell you yeah. that? Um, about a week after my diagnosis, which at the diagnosis, they said typically with the level I was at and the type I had, I had four to five years on average to live, which was devastating in and of itself. But then about a week later, the tumors in my liver caused me to go into liver failure. And the doctors kind of just put their hands up and said, there's nothing we can do. Uh, You need to just go home and be with your family. You've got a few days to live at most a week and uh, good luck. That was the most horrifying thing I can 
imagine ever happening. Being told you've got days to live. I, I couldn't accept it. We begged the doctors to try anything, no matter how painful or weird it was or experimental. I was willing to do anything to try to not have my liver fail and not see my kids grow up. I just, I couldn't imagine that. And the doctors that I had at the time were unwilling to try things. So we ended up actually consulting with, well, I didn't, I was drugged up on morphine in a hospital bed, but my husband and his, his supportive sibling consulted with a local doctor who was related to a good friend of ours. And his doctor uh, consults with the Knight Cancer Institute oncology doctors. And so he, even though he's a cardiologist, he's very experienced in that world of cancer. And he, I, I gave them permission to give him my file. And he looked through my file and took it to his friends at the United Cancer Institute. And they all said, she doesn't have to die. What this in is the heck? Re- <laughs> yeah, this is ridiculous. Give her this particular treatment and, and she'll, we're pretty sure she'll be fine. So my doctors resisted. And then finally, reluctantly, the head of the department of where I was at said, fine, we'll do one treatment and see how you tolerate it. And it, that was two and a half years ago. <laughs> It worked. So as soon as my insurance would allow me, I switched away from and am now at Night Cancer Institute with an amazing doctor and team of nurses. And I have ongoing treatments, but I trust them. Mm-hmm. And how's your liver doing now? My liver's fine. All the tumors. So the first chemotherapy drug that I used for about six months as well as some other immunotherapy drugs, helped get rid of all the tumors that were in my liver and killed the tumors that were in my bones, in my spine. I did then get a bunch of tumors that showed up in my brain later because the drugs that I was using uh, don't cross the blood-brain barrier. So they weren't weren't treating my brain. Mm So for that, I had to do whole brain radiation, Mm -hmm. Um, but it got rid of all the tumors that were in my brain. And so uh, for the last year and a half, I've been just taking the immunotherapy drugs every three weeks, um, a mild chemotherapy and hormone suppressant. So at the moment, you don't have any tumors in your body as far as you know. That's great. I get scanned every three months so they can check and decide if like if when a tumor did pop up in my brain again, just one. And because it was just one, they were able to do some uh, focused radiation on that. And so they'll just continue to, to hit things, target things as they pop up. At some point, the immunotherapy drugs that suppress the tumors will probably stop working and then I'll just go on to the next stage, the next drug. Uh-huh. And I have four more stages ahead of me from where I'm at now that I will be able to rely on as things fail. Wow, it's um, amazing that the medical yeah. advancements, isn't it? Really saved yes. your life. Wow. Yes. Extended yes. your life, definitely. Yes. 
I think it's really um, the story of Ted. I remember reading about that on Facebook as you're going through that journey. And he was such a great advocate for you. I mean, yes. you know, if you hadn't had him, you would have been left to die, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ted, I'm a fighter. And and that's I the, the vague memories I have of that week in the hospital were me saying, I'm a fighter. Just let, give me a chance. And, you know, I can't die and not be there for my kids and think, you know, I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter. And he knew that I was a fighter and that there was no reason why we couldn't try something. Yeah. You know, is instead of just saying, oh, oh we're done. Let's just give know. up. Yeah. <laughs> let's go home and let yeah. you be comfortable. And and so um, with the support of our cardiologist friend, sort of the way I've described it to other people is it was sort of like Dr. Mark had his hands on Ted's shoulders and just kind of kept pushing. And so that Ted was able to keep fighting and eventually wore down the head of the department until she, but I'll never forget. I, I do remember when she finally caved, she just rolled her eyes and said, fine, we'll do one treatment. And then you're going into hospice tomorrow. And because she knew in her, she just had decided that it wasn't going to work and I was definitely going to die. And that just, it made me so angry and so determined to live. Wow. And do you think that they now see how wrong they were? Well, they don't, I don't see them. I don't know. So it was a cancer center you were going to? It was a local hospital, yeah. A local hospital. Really? Yeah, a local oncology hospital or department. And, mm. you know, it's it's what our insurance allowed at uh -huh. the time. And I so I continued to see them for nine months because we couldn't change till the turn of the year. Uh. Uh, and I continued to have horrendous treatment. My oncologist at the time continued every, every single meeting we had every three weeks, especially in the beginning when different treatments were being uh, offered or not offered to me. Every time I would say, oh, well, if I'm going to do X, then from what I've read, I need A to support it. And he'd say, oh, no, no, Sky, you're stage four. That's not part of the treatment because it'll, it, it'll be too hard on you. And we want you to be comfortable. And I'd say, I'm not here to be comfortable. I'm here to kill the cancer tumors. Right. Me the treatment. And he wouldn't. And so then, you know, like one of the things I was requesting was a drug called Nulasta, which, so when you're in chemotherapy, one of the things that can happen is it can deteriorate your, your bones, your, oh, what's the word? Uh, the marrow, the marrow yeah, in your uh -huh. bones. And so if you get this particular shot called Nulasta before your treatments, then that it can kind of prevent that from happening. Because if, if your bone marrow is being destroyed, then your white cell count goes down and you're more likely to get infections. And it's just really dangerous. And he wouldn't give me the, the Nulasta before the first treatment because it was going to make my joints ache. And I said, I don't care if the joints ache. Oh. Like, if this will keep me a lot, you know, yeah. 
more alive or alive longer, then I'll do it. And he was like, no, you're stage four. It's not part of the protocol. And so I had the first treatment and my immune system immediately crashed so hard that I had to be hospitalized in an isolation ward for nine days before I finally threw a fit and said, I'm checking myself out if you guys don't let me out here because I couldn't see my kids. And the whole point to treatment was to be able to stay alive to see my kids. And if I was just going to be in an isolation ward, then it kind of defeated the purpose. And so next chemo treatment, I said, if you don't give me Nulasta, I'm going to figure out some way to go to some other doctor because I, it was worse. I would rather be stuck in bed or on the couch with achy joints than isolated in the hospital. The that defeats the whole purpose. And so he very reluctantly gave me that drug. And it was just, that was the way it was the entire time that I had the whole nine months that I had to be with him. My husband and I had to prepare for every three weeks going in and having a meeting with him, knowing we had to fight for the next thing. Every single time it was, oh no, you're stage four. We don't do that. That's not part of the protocol for stage four people. And it was just so we didn't want to have to fight the doctors as well as the disease. So finally on January 1st, we were able to switch insurance. It's been wonderful. I have wonderful care. I'm very pleased with every encounter with doctors and nurses and everyone. Wow, what a story. I, I didn't know you had to fight your doctor so hard. Yeah, it was shocking. Thank, um, goodness, thank goodness you're a fighter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Wow, that is amazing. Yes, you did. I mean, you, 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 you know, I remember um, when, when I had, you know, Chris, my oldest son was a 24 weeker and like two days after he was born, a doctor came in and said, he has a 50% chance of dying. He has a 50% chance of having major disabilities. And then a well-meaning friend came in and said, you know, all the odds are against him. Oh, and I burst, and I burst into tears and I uh, was very upset and I told her to leave. And then I had the nurses write a note on my door that said, think positive thoughts. Yeah. You know, and for me going through that kind of, you know, that was my crisis. And I really felt like I had to have hope. Yes. Yes. You know? I mean, and I think that some of the doctors and probably similar to your doctors, they want to manage your expectations. They want you to know everything that, you know, that could happen. Yes, but you also want them to fight for you. Exactly. And exactly. It's set of doctors weren't willing to fight for no. me. They wanted me to peacefully pass away. Yeah. And I, you know, I know based on my experience of a year and a half now with the new doctors that they're willing to fight for me. You know, when a new drug got approved, um, well, three new drugs actually back in December for my particular type of cancer uh, by the FDA, my oncologist actually called me. He just called me. And you know, whenever I see his name on the phone, there is a, always a little bit of a jump in my stomach, but he was like, don't worry, everything's okay. I just wanted to call and give you this new information about these new drugs and they're going to extend your life even more. And I'm just really excited for you. 
that is the difference between the other doctor saying, oh no, this is bad. Very, very bad. Yeah. You are stage four. We don't do that for stage P- four people. You know, the positive fighting for you versus yeah. the glum and negative and unwilling to work for you. Sounds like your, your new doctor really cares for you. Yes. 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 I'm so glad. So glad that you're having that positive experience now. So um, what has surprised you about cancer? I didn't know how long it would take to recover. On one hand, my recovery from each of these different treatments has been longer and harder than it would typically be because I spent the first three months of this in a hospice bed. Prior to the liver failure, I had been a strong, fit person. But then by the time I got out of that hospice bed and my liver was sort of recovered at that point, but not fully, I immediately went into chemo and, you know, my body just wasn't strong enough to kind of cope. And as soon as the hardcore chemo drug was done, I had the full brain radiation and that really impacts your body that it took uh, a year and a half to recuperate from that. You know, I'm just now two and a half years into this at a place where I can have the strength and the balance and the energy to take my dogs for a one mile walk. (laughs) You know, I did not realize I knew that while I was on chemo, it was going to suck, but it was so much more compounded and lengthy than I realized. That was really surprising. I found, you know, my um, brother-in-law had uh, throat cancer last year and is still trying to recover. He had really big tumor in his um, in the back of his throat, and wow. um, and they, you know, they gave predictions. At one point, they said that he would start feeling better two weeks after radiation was over, and he had all sorts of problems. And really, now he still is on a feeding tube, and he's get he's taking about half of his calories by uh, by mouth now, and so he's it's just been a long, long journey back. And and they, you know, the doctors, they just don't know how long it's going to take you to recover. And, you know, and apparently his tumor was really enormous. So they really put every ounce of radiation they could on him. So it's just, it's just really is so hard to predict how long it's going to take, you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I really admire your strength. So what have you learned about yourself and what have you learned about your family during this experience? I was shocked and humbled at the way my immediate family and my, what I call my family, <laughs> my, the friends that are in my life and just the greater community here in my, my neighborhood, my village, the people that I'm not necessarily close to, and even some neighbors that I'd never even met, at how everyone rallied around us, around me. I couldn't ask for anything too great. And several people would volunteer to then take care of whatever that was. And we were provided with home-cooked dinners for as long as we needed, rides for the kids. People came and walked our dogs. I mean, it was just, it was overwhelming in an amazing way. 
at how everyone took care of us. My, my children amazed me at how resilient they have been. At the time that I went into liver failure and things were really, really ugly, they were oh, 13 and 15. Logan had just turned 15. They just handled it so well, so maturely. So they, they each handled it differently, but they handled the emotions and they, they asked for help when they needed it and got through it. And people supported them, teachers at the school, counselors at the school. I was shocked at how everyone just was there for, for both the kids and for me and for Ted. And it just, it was just amazing. And I didn't realize how much love was in my life. I'm kind of an introvert and a grouch or not a, not a grouch, but a I'm very sort of skeptical You're about life. Skeptic. A skeptic. I don't yeah. experience you as a grouch so, at all. <laughs> I kind of thought that a lot of the people that were around me were just sort of putting up with me because they had to, right? Uh-huh, right. I was a volunteer at the schools and, and I was their neighbor and our kids played together. And now I know just how much so many of them love me, oh. love my family. And it just, it, it, that changed me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fear of death changed me in some ways, but then all the love and support changed me in other ways, in such amazing, good ways. That's yeah. wonderful. I, I, I experienced the same thing with the NICU experience yeah. as well. And, and speaking of that, I, I'm wondering whether you have been able to find a community of other people who are living with metastatic cancer. Because I feel like I got a lot of support knowing other parents who were going through the experience. Right. So before I got the second diagnosis, when I was just someone that had experienced, you know, stage zero uh, and had my mastectomies, I had gotten to know a small group of women, not through one of the hospital support groups, but just people that we had found each other, like two of them were friends and they both had cancer. And then they each knew one other person that had cancer. So they invited them to coffee and it slowly grew into a group of, I don't know, eight or 10 women who all had had an experience with a, a low level of cancer and mastectomies and lumpectomies. And some of them had had radiation and some had had chemo. And we were kind of, we would meet and chat once a month. And so one of the other women in the group also had, or before I did, she had stage four. And so when I had my second round with it and it was back, she immediately pulled me into a group, a small group of, I think there's five women that all have metastatic breast cancer. Both groups were part of that family that <laughs> that was so helpful in numerous ways when I was really hurting. Wonderful. Yeah. I feel like it's, you really can get that kind of support from other people who are experiencing the same thing. It's, it's, it's yeah. very difficult to duplicate that in any other environment. So, yes. um, so you are incredibly strong and resilient. And, you know, when you were, when you were predicted to have, you know, die from liver failure, you were a fighter. What do you think gives you that strength? How did that, how did you get shaped into this kind of person that you were so strong and such a fighter? I'm not sure. My 
childhood wasn't really full of love and I turned out completely normal. I spent my whole childhood and teen years just surviving and figuring out how to thrive on my own. And once I was a young adult, my whole goal in life was to to create my own loving network. I didn't really have those words for it, but that's what I was doing was connecting with people that were kind and loving. That's how I ended up with the wonderful husband. And I've just always been a hard worker. I think that when you're given nothing, you either strive for nothing or you strive for everything. And so my way of reacting just happened to be that I was striving for everything. And so I've put myself through college and just worked for everything I had. And I've just always done that. Every goal I ever set for myself, I fought for it. Abandoning my children at such a formidable age just wasn't acceptable. I could not leave them right at that time when hormones were flying. And my big fears were that my dying while they were teens would cause them to veer off the track of the solid foundation that Ted and I had been giving them and make them decide, you know, not to go to college, not to finish high school or whatever. All the, all the terrible things that a parent thinks of for their kids that are worries about that could happen for their kids. I didn't want something as stupid as cancer to change their life drastically. You know, I didn't want to die and have it be this huge thing. I wanted to see them get through high school. And at that point, until very recently, I didn't dare dream any further than that. I just wanted to be able to see my kids graduate from high school and wave at them as they went off to college. Now I'm able to see more than that. But that was my goal. I I could not die before my kids graduated from high school. It was like you had some kind of superhuman strength. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the image that comes to mind as you're describing this is fierce mother bear. Yeah, yeah. That's that's maybe what (laughs) propelled you to, I mean, because I don't think that all people would have that strength that you displayed there. And also with Ted as well, the fact that you just have that that strength and that uh, will to survive that, you know, it's really amazing. Yeah. You know, I think that positive attitudes and just willingness to, to work and, and suffer do impact a situation. It, it makes me wonder how much though, and how much of it was just dumb luck. That, <laughs> well, <you> know, yeah. <laughs> that it all just has been working out so far. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Well, I'm sure that Ted finding this other doctor who had, you know. Oh, him, that definitely, yeah. Yeah, there's luck. There's, I don't know if you believe in any kind of spiritual forces. There may be some of that going on as well. And, you know, <laughs> it's like everything, everything was, all of the, the planets were colliding or not colliding. <laughs> they were, yeah. They were in the orbit. Lined up for me. Yes, they were lined up. Yeah. Yes. So um, on a lighter note, what, how, how do you like to spend your time? In the last two to three months, I have suddenly had a great improvement in my 
overall health because not only was I weak and didn't have balance and strength and endurance and stuff, but I also, my brain was pretty heavily impacted by all the radiation and I couldn't read. I'm a reader. Yeah, me too. My whole life up until this point, I always had a novel and also some science fiction book and something else going. And I was just always reading. So for the first two years of this situation, I could not read at all, but now I can. So, and now I have the end. I also couldn't exercise. I couldn't go for walks. I couldn't do anything physical and now I can. And so I've just been reading so much. And every day I'm out walking my dog. I've done enough seated yoga that now my core is strong enough that I can do regular yoga. And I'm able to see gains, you know, because of COVID, I don't meet my friends for coffee like I love to do. Mm-hmm. And little things like that, but I am able to move my body and read books. And I spent every day, I cook some big dinner for the family and eventually things will open up with the COVID situation. And I love getting to, you know, once or twice a week, see a friend and have a good chat. But I will, yeah, I mean, as this cancer situation moves forward, I can't really make plans. I don't know what I will be capable of doing from day to day or from week to week. So for now, I'm just enjoying being here with my kids. That's been my big thing. They both walk home for lunch during school days. So I made a point of making sure none of my doctor's appointments were ever during the lunch hour so that I could always be present with them because I didn't know how many days I would still be able to do that. I just am really enjoying them and helping with those final things of the age they're at, like applying for scholarships and looking at colleges and things like that, studying for their SATs and just being here as they go through all that, watching Logan play football And it's just, it's great to just be here. I didn't know if I would, I was told I wouldn't be here at this point. And even though I was determined to fight that, you know, I still didn't know if I'd be successful. And I'm just happy to just be with my family and just be able to continue living for a while. You recently shared an article on Facebook about another woman who had a similar type of cancer and she had lived with it for 11 years. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the number. It was something like 11 and she had been through my exact experience. Well, not the liver failure part, but she had the exact same cancer that I have and she has been on the same drugs for treating the cancer that I've been on and It's just, you know, refreshing to see that, you know, that initial diagnosis of three to four years or four to five years, more and more women are going well past that. Right. And that is really encouraging for me. Very encouraging. That's great. Great news. So what are you most proud of in your life? The family that I was able to create. Finding Ted to be my partner was the best thing that ever happened to me. And then 
the kids that we created that I'm just so proud of that, that I, you know, I have not been a a perfect mom. It's not possible to be a perfect, but I have, I worked really hard to learn from the poor examples that I had in my life and to try really hard to make better decisions and to be the loving parents and supportive parents and to for my my children to know that I always had their back and they have told each told me on multiple occasions how much they have appreciated Ted and I being there for them and supporting them and loving them and so that's Definitely the thing I'm most proud of in my life is being able to break that cycle of what I was given and do better and see two really amazing young adults in front of me now. Yeah, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. So think about a time recently when you felt great joy. What was happening? Describe the scene. Well, two or three months ago, I woke up one day and within a couple hours realized that I had tons of energy. I was reading the back of the oatmeal container, looking at serving sizes and things and realized that I was actually comprehending what I was reading. So I picked up a magazine and tried to read an article and I was able to retain I was able to comprehend it and retain what I was reading. And I had the urge to take the dogs for a short walk. It was just, I I still feel so much joy. I feel like, okay, I do have a a bit, uh, most of my life back, you know, like it's never going to be the same as it was before metastatic breast cancer. The treatments wear me out. You know, at some point tumors are going to come back. And so I'm going to go to a harder treatment, but it's so much now more like my old life, as far as what I can do with my right now, with my time right now that I just, I'm so happy. The things we take for granted, be able to read an oatmeal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that this has given you a much more of an awareness about appreciating the little things in life that you weren't able to experience for a while. Absolutely. I am so value just being able to walk around my neighborhood, you know, waving at the neighbors, picking up dog poo. <laughs> you know, I, there was a point at which I just wanted to be able to go to the grocery store by myself to be able to do that to go get my own groceries without coordinating with someone else as much as I help appreciated the help from all the people that were doing that for me. It's nice to be able to just do it yourself. Those simple little things of getting the groceries, cooking dinner, walking your dogs, chatting with your kids about a book they're reading and being able to understand what they're talking about. You know, having Logan ask me if there's a book we can read together this summer and and talk about it like our own little book group and being able to say yes, like just those little things. I just, I appreciate just being here, being with them and just the simple things in life. I love that your son asked you that. That's amazing. (laughs) So what book are you, what book are you reading? Have you chosen one yet? We haven't because he was in the middle of reading the first book of Game of Thrones oh, yeah. uh-huh. when he asked me that. So uh-huh. 
we're kind of waiting for him to finish that, which he'll probably do in the next week or two. And then we'll read something. We both love to read science fiction and fantasy. Uh So it'll be something in that genre. I was thinking about having him read the dragon riders of Pern with me because that's a book I'd like to revisit. Nice. That's wonderful. (laughs) If you could um, think back to yourself to age 21, what would you say to your 21 year old self? If you could send her a message, you are worth life. You are valuable in this world. I don't know. I think that would be the biggest message I could give her. Because back then she was still trying to find a place, trying to feel valued. Right. So let's talk about grit, resilience, and connection. What do those words mean to you? And what can parents do to instill grit or resilience in their kids? And the other, the other question is, related question is, how can someone else increase their resilience? You have a tremendous amount of resilience, which is why I wanted to talk to you. How can somebody who doesn't have that level of resilience, what can they do to work on their muscles, their resilience muscles? Do you have any suggestions for people? Those words all mean that failure doesn't make you quit. I believe failure is the beginning of success because you figured out a thing that didn't work for a situation. And so you brainstorm to come up with another thing to make that situation work. And you learn from that. How do you teach your kids that I have had so many conversations with the kids with one of them being upset about something not working out or scared of a thing that's coming because they're sure they're going to fail. I just keep talking to them about fear and anxiety are normal and natural and everyone has them and it's perfectly okay to feel those things, but to push through them. Don't let those things hold you back. Don't let fear, anxiety, anger, feel them, experience them, but don't let them hold you back. And so that's what I would say to adults as well. Like life is hard sometimes and we can get through it. If you don't have a chemical dysfunction giving you a mental health issue, if you're healthy mentally, then you can get through anything. Just Take a deep breath so that you can regroup, think about what went wrong, and try again. That's just been the way I've always functioned. I fail and I'm frustrated and heartbroken or angry, or and I pick myself up and brush off the dust and keep going forward, you know? I want to love life. I want to be fulfilled and satisfied by life. I want to enjoy people around me. And so that's just always been the way I've functioned. Yeah, when my kids have had a hard day, I have often given them the advice of just go to sleep. You can start again tomorrow. Tomorrow's a new day. And I've often, yeah, and I've often applied that to myself if I have a hard day, you know. Now, with 2019, we'll all, we all want to start over. <laughs> Yeah, the whole year 2020. Sorry. I mean, I remember at the end of 2019, I thought, Oh, my God, thank God, we're in another year. And then, and then we got, (laughs) I know, but you know, but even even with the difficult things this year, there have been many blessings and many positive things as well. So yeah, I like that. I like what you said about failure is the beginning of success. That's, that's really, that's quotable. 
Oh, I'm sure I read that somewhere. I know. That's okay. (laughs) That's okay. So is there a particular story of grit, resilience, and connection uh, that has been an inspiration for you? I mean, there was never someone, when I was young and wanting better, there was no one really that inspired me. I was pretty sheltered and in a small town, but my own success getting away from what I didn't have and then slowly but surely gaining what I wanted and what I felt I did deserve continued to inspire me. Each step along the way as I got something better, made my life slightly improved in a certain way, inspired me to continue to work hard to improve my life even more and obtain even bigger goals. And so, I mean, that I guess that's weird to say. So I don't think that's weird. You inspired inspired yourself. I don't think that's (laughs) weird at all. I think it's beautiful. Um, Yeah, I just didn't really have role models. And I And that's that's also another would also be another good message for you to give to your 21 year old self that you can inspire yourself. Yeah. Yeah, true. Right? So where can our listeners connect with you online? If somebody has a question for you or um, wants to get to know you, are you open to having people contact you? Absolutely. If there's anything I could ever do to be support for another person who might be going through the same thing I'm going through or just something difficult, I would be happy to, you know, have an online connection. So I'm on Facebook, Sky Liebold, and I'm on Instagram. My handle there is Sick Punk Sky. <laughs> and yeah, just reach out to me if, if you're wanting to talk further about my strange experiences, my dumb luck at still being alive. (laughs) It's more than dumb luck. Well, this has been a really inspiring conversation. I'm so glad that you've taken the time to chat with me. You're a real inspiration. Well, thank you, Marie, because prior to all this, I never would have thought of myself as someone who could inspire others. I've had a lot of people tell me that recently, but for someone to say it to the level of wanting to actually like talk to me about it, that makes me feel really good. Good. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you, Sky. I'm so glad you're doing so well. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed meeting Sky. Next week, we'll meet New Yorker Danette Edwards, who has an extensive history of work and travel. After living in Nairobi, Kenya for a few years, she's now living in Washington, D.C. During COVID-19, she's taken this opportunity to put her organizational and leadership skills to work by founding Corona Days Professional Development, an online network that helps people from marginalized communities get back to work. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by my friend and jazz pianist, Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. We help organizations and people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I look forward to our conversation next week.